Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Children invited to Kids Zone Worship at this time, if you want to do that, or you can remain in here with us. Before the service, uh, I was in here, the kids were getting ready to sing. They were running through their, their palm branches and their song, and uh, I noticed some of them weren't smiling, maybe quite the way we would like them to, so, so I said, hey, kids, Hey, think about it. If Jesus rode on a donkey down the middle aisle, how would you respond? And one of the kids said, well, that would just be weird. <laughs> I guess that's true. It would be, would be weird. Still worth smiling about, though. But. Well, good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see you all in worship. This is week six of our Lent to Easter series, Broken Signposts. We've been looking at signposts in the human experience that point us beyond ourselves and beyond this world, signposts that point to God and Christ and the good news and ultimately to the coming of a new world. I hope that you've been able to see that each week in this series. Uh, N.T. Wright says this is how Christianity makes sense of the world. So if you're just joining us, that's actually the subtitle of Tom Wright's book, Broken Signposts, which inspired this series. And Wright says that every worldview must explain seven signposts that we presently experience as broken and unattainable, those being justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. So in his book, he argues that Christianity presents a compelling and relevant explanation for why these signposts are broken, but also how these markers point to the transcendence, right? And ultimately to the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus as the starting point of new creation right here in the middle of the old one, which cries out for liberation from its decay. And we've now given attention to five of these signposts, justice, love, spirituality, beauty, and freedom. So today, on Palm Sunday, we are looking at the next broken signpost, the signpost of truth. If you're taking notes, I've entitled this message, Knowing the Source of All Truth. And my hope and aim of this message this morning is that the Spirit would help us to see how our longings and affirmations for justice, love, beauty, and freedom mean absolutely nothing if truth isn't an objective, knowable reality. For when there are no objective truths, life is reduced simply to a struggle of the wills. That's what I want us to think about this morning. In other words, if there's no objective truth, then right, wrong, good, and evil are just a matter of opinion. And there are no universal laws. And then it comes down to what Nietzsche referred to as the power of the wills, 
where we simply all try to dominate our opponent and get our way by whatever means necessary, which I believe that we're seeing today in our country. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would be evident among us in this time together as you've been throughout the service so far. You would speak to our hearts and our minds, ultimately, Lord, revealing the truth of Jesus Christ, how Christianity, the gospel, makes sense of the world. And Lord, help us to embrace that truth from you this morning and know how to live and walk in it. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's begin with a scripture reading from John chapter 18. If you have your Bible, you want to go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. We also have Bibles in the pew back in front of you, or you may want to use an app on your phone. John chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 28 through 38. Just to set the context here as you're turning there, uh, Jesus has already been arrested. He's gone before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling high council. Peter's denied him, and then they send him to Pilate. Verse 28, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, he's the high leader, religious and political leader of the Jews. It ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. Your Bible may say prefect or procurator, all the same thing. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate the governor went out to them and asked, what is your charge against this man? Now, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Well, only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. And he asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus replied, Is this your own question, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said, so you're a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked, and we'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At the height of the Me Too movement, Some of you may remember that Oprah Winfrey received a Golden Globe and gave an inspiring speech. And in that speech, she said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Now, certainly, and I want to be absolutely clear about this, as Christians, we should be all for empowering women and taking claims of abuse Seriously, absolutely. 
But why say speaking your truth and not just the truth? You know, nobody in the history of mankind has ever talked like that, has ever described the truth in that way. And I think it's a mistake to think that this is just semantics. Rather, this is communicating an idea that is popular and growing within our culture. And while I believe that Oprah was genuinely seeking to empower women not to remain silent about their experiences of mistreatment or abuse, as we should, this language is reflective of a disturbing shift in our culture. I could use a lot of different examples. I just chose this one since it was more public. So we live in an increasingly relativistic age that touts that truth and meaning is something that can be invented and that my experience trumps any and all other claims to the contrary. That's what we mean when we say it's my truth. Therefore, all truths then are made subjective. They're my, just my experience. It's, it's my perspective. It's my opinion, but we don't call it opinion. We call it truth. So who are you to tell me what is right, what is wrong, what is good or evil? And if you question uh, or, or don't accept everything that I'm saying, then you are the oppressor. <laughs> wow. Well, first notice the power language that's being used in this response. And I actually think that it's quite ironic uh, because often those who do this sort of thing with my truth and want to say there's a misuse of power regardless of the context can easily slip into doing the same thing. Since the truth doesn't exist, it's just my word against yours. And it really does come down to using words as weapons and shifting the power from one group to another group. Uh, one big problem with moral relativism, uh, and I saw recently as polls are showing in, in a lot of different ways, Americans are becoming increasingly relativistic, uh, right, that, that there is no objective truth, but they are certainly relativistic when it comes to sexuality. That's when we really want to use, well, this is my business, not yours. This is my truth, not yours, so stay out of it. You see, one big problem with moral relativism and relativizing truth, where some may say that may be true for you, but it's not true for me, is that it eventually gives way to totalitarianism. You see, because when there's no universal or absolute truths by which we can all together appeal and say this is right and we can agree that this is wrong and then submit to those truths, then we are ultimately left with nothing more than the battle of the wills. Everything becomes about the will to power and gaining control over others. Have you noticed this happening in society and culture in America? Everything is simply reduced down to power and who has it. And so through that lens, when you talk about truth and what's right and wrong, it's really somebody trying to make a power move over you. Because where things are going is there really isn't 
such a thing as truth. You see, there, there's evidence that this is happening in the U.S. If you think about it, uh, appeals to emotions like fear and anger over logic and reason, the limiting of free speech, uh, policing other people's words, attempts to change the meaning of words, and canceling people, whether you're on the right or the left, everybody's doing it. And experts in political philosophy and the histories of totalitarian regimes will tell you that these are all signs of a society that is moving away from democracy and walking the scary path of imperial dictatorial rule. But nobody seems to be listening to those folks. You see, and this is not a conspiracy theory, what I'm telling you. So, you see, it's like, it's like and I hope you, you've never done this, but you've at least heard heard of the analogy of putting a, a frog in a, in, a, in a pot of water and slowly turning up the water to a boil and he will never jump out and he will cook in that and not know it. And this is, this is what's happening slowly and incrementally until one day you wake up and Caesar is running the show and rule by force is the name of the game. And that was the world in which Jesus lived. That is the context of his conversation with Pilate. Remember the question that Pilate asked Jesus. Jesus speaks of the truth and Pilate says, what is truth? Now, I gave a little inflection in that because this is how I hear Pilate saying it. What is truth? Right, because Pilate, he's no philosopher. Right, he's certainly no theologian in a formal sense. And Pilate only knew one truth. And that truth was I've got the power and you don't. And in case you forgot it, he says in that conversation, don't you know, what does he say? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? I think in sometimes movies about Jesus portray this, although I don't think it's accurate, that Pilate was a softie. <laughs> uh, there's, there's detailed history on how brutal of a man Pilate was. One time slaughtering thousands of Jews all at once just to flex the Roman muscle and say, we're in charge. We're in charge. And so I know sometimes it's portrayed as maybe it's because Pilate's wife and the Gospel of Matthew says, I've had this dream about this Yeshua of Nazareth, don't have anything to do with him. But I don't think Pilate was really listening to his wife. I mean, who does? <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying, isn't that often the case? Now, men, listen to your wives. I don't think Pilate was. And also, I don't think we can sometimes read this narrative of somehow Pilate's trying to push off the responsibility of Jesus onto the religious leaders. Now, in one sense, he may be, may be possibly trying to do that, right, because he doesn't want them to blame Rome, but he, he doesn't really show a, a great concern for that up until this point at his time as procurator. I actually think that Pilate is playing a power game he wants the religious leaders and the Jews to know that ultimately he is the one with the power 
the power to kill, the power to crucify Jesus. So Pilate is playing power games on Good Friday. He is no softy. And truth here is staring Pilate in the face, but he loved power more than truth. Pilate's not really interested in getting into some philosophical or theological conversation with Jesus, although he finds it strange in the person of Jesus and really non-threatening and doesn't quite understand. He's perfectly willing to bring the hammer down, literally, and put an end to Jesus. And aren't we seeing the same thing today, in a sense? I'd submit to you that we, we cannot go along with the secular society that says truth is something that we get to invent or the cynical, dare I say, demonic notion that truth is just about power and getting the edge over our opponent. Nor can we as Christ followers simply parrot the popular mantras of a post-truth, post-truth culture and the belief that information and news is fake only when it doesn't fit my politics and particular worldview. If it's coming out of a news source that I don't trust or don't like or listen to. You see, we we mustn't give in to this destructive thinking that erodes and can eradicate the very foundations of Western society. We do not get to create our own meaning, our own identity and values. We don't get to create our, uh, our, our own meaning. This is from above. We do not get to bend nature to our will and make it do our bidding without consequence. We were made to live in harmony with it. And nor do we have the right to define our own existence as one U.S. Supreme Court justice has said. You see, we exist because of the divine will. And therefore, all these things, the most important things in life, come into sharp focus for us, and we discover it with great clarity when we decide to know and align ourselves with that will. Philosophers and theologians have articulated the grave fallacy of Pilate's kind of thinking for millennia, even pointing to the Roman Empire as an example of where arrogance, violence, Greed, abuse of power, and moral relativism eventually end up if you don't see the signs flashing turn around. (laughs) And this was long before the likes of Machiavelli, of Nietzsche, of Sartre, and of Marx. But honestly, our ignorance of the voices in history that made liberal democracies possible And the danger of the dehumanizing philosophies that they opposed is leading our own nation into ruin. And so let's think about some of that history for a moment, and then we'll hear from Jesus directly. Uh, The Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft talks about this in his recent lectures and book set on the history of philosophy, a book set called Socrates' Children. If you don't know this, Uh, Socrates lived in the 5th century B.C. And he's known as the father of philosophy, was the first to articulate when a point was proven, the first to carve out a path for others to follow in logic, reason, and wisdom. That's what philosophy means, the, the love of wisdom. 
That is different than knowledge, by the way. So Socrates and Plato and Aristotle after him believed in objective truths and that truth was knowable and evident to all. And this belief was rooted in his subversive claim that there was only one God. That's what Socrates said. The, the great spirit, he referred to it as the spirit. He, he believed, revealed this truth to him. In the fifth century BC, a belief that ultimately got him executed for corrupting the youth with his radical ideas. And it's worth noting that Socrates' biggest opponents were the sophists, that simply means the wise guys, <laughs> a group of folks who embraced pagan myths and polytheism and therefore did not believe there was any true knowing. Truth is really just about rationalizing our desires, and later will sound a little bit like Freud when it comes to sexuality, right? To ration, just, it's just a rationalizing our desires and using truth to get what we want. So they were masters in appealing to people's emotions, using clever tricks and manipulation in relationships and in politics. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You know, really, the devil doesn't have any new ideas. Hell just keeps regurgitating them over and over. The thing is for us that we're so out of tune with history that something comes along and we just start repeating it and we think it's new and we think it's progress when really it's just old stuff that never worked out before, but here we go trying it again. So they were masters in this. They actually said, we can make the weakest argument your strongest simply by appealing to emotion. Truth, there is no such thing. Reason, forget it. Just appeal to people's emotions. And of course, in the East, God had been working with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob long before Socrates. It was through the Hebrew father and mothers and through people like Moses and the prophets that God called his people to work out his divine will. God was doing something unique through the people of Israel. It was Socrates and his children in Greece that truth came through logic and reason. And it was through the Hebrews that truth came through faith and religion. And eventually these would merge in Christianity. And that would last for about 1,500 years. Then we would see, again, a separation of this back into another swamp. So you can see the, the graphic here. Creve uh, talks about Socrates and the Hebrew faith emerging from a swamp of pagan mythology and polytheism. And here it seems that we're headed into a, another swamp in the time in which we live. So notice, both emerged from the swamp of pagan mythology and polytheism. They both said there is one God that could be known through reason and through revelation. That is, that is through law and logic, through prophets and miracles, through science. I mean, the greatest, the first greatest uh, scientists were Christians, folks. And so so th th these are not um, mutually exclusive. They, they can go together. Through all of these things, law, logic, prophets, miracles, science, and nature, we can know the divine. And because of that, both believed in universal truths and laws that were set by the divine mind behind the cosmos. The ultimate being was called Yahweh, or God by the Hebrews, and the Logos 
by the ancient Greeks. Maybe you've heard that, logos, or maybe some of you say logos. The Greek is logos. What, is, what does this mean? So the, the Greek concept is, this is the most profound word in the Greek language, meaning true being, true knowledge. Plato would talk about the forms, the, the things that we see here are just copies of a real thing. And so all of these signposts and these desires with things like justice and beauty and all, all of that, they are copies of something real. These aren't made up. We didn't invent them. It, it's, 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 it's worked into our DNA. We were created with these desires and with these impulses by a moral lawgiver. But again, this Greek word logos, true being, true knowledge, it, it represented intelligibility, reason, and true understanding, the mind and the thoughts of the one God. And then in Hebraic thought, logos is used as referring to the word of God that created the world. When God said, let there be light. The wisdom and law and the will of God for his people and all of creation. The word is the life-giving power of the one true God. Now with all that in mind, and think about that, both the Greek and the Hebraic way of understanding Logos. Now listen to how John begins his gospel. In the beginning, now when you hear that, you're probably thinking, oh, that sounds familiar. That's Genesis 1.1. And John's doing this on purpose because what John is doing in the gospel of John is talking about new creation. A new creation is happening in the person of Jesus. And he says, in the beginning was the Logos. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa, interesting. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. Listen to what John is doing. He is synthesizing both Greek and Hebraic thought about God and about truth. He clearly says the Logos is God. And then look in verse 14, he writes, and we've seen this a couple times in our series already. He says, the word, the Logos became flesh not just an idea. It's not just a form that we look at as shadows in the back of the cave wall, as Plato would say. No, the word, the logos, whose spirit became a human being. He made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. We've seen his beauty, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is saying the Logos is Jesus. He's the only begotten, unique Son of God. He tells us that in John 3.16 in this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. He's the divine mind. He's the source of all truth in the universe. For he made, as John will say, all things were made through him, by him, for him. Nothing that's been made wasn't made without Jesus Christ. The Logos made flesh. And he came from the Father full of grace, hallelujah, and truth. You see, Jesus doesn't just represent and give us truth. He says himself that he is the truth. Another verse that we've seen in this series. Jesus said, I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus, as I've told you before, is emphatic here. I myself and the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus wants to know God, his mind, his will, his meaning, and purpose for our lives through the person of Jesus. 
It's because of this that we can say, not my truth, not your truth, but the truth. John 8, 31, verse 32, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In some way, this kind of sounds a bit like what Socrates said once. He said, to know the good is to do it. To know the good is to do it. And see, truth isn't just something I want to be on the right side of. Truth isn't just something I want to give mental assent to. I believe that. Truth is I want to embody it. I want it to affect me. I want it to change me. So don't miss this. Jesus wants to set us free by the truth. Now, how often people accept lies because the truth is hard or they want to hide behind falsehoods because the truth is like light and it exposes. And there's a part in all of us, like Adam and Eve, if we just keep repeating this garden scene, where we want to run and hide because of the shame and the nakedness and the guilt of the sin, because of the guilt of the lie that we've bought into. But actually, if we can throw ourselves at the mercies of God and receive His grace and receive His truth and accept all of its implications for our lives, we will know freedom. Now, the world will tell you different. The way to freedom is to simply give in to all of your, you know, inclinations and everything you think and everything you feel and be authentic. But this is not the message of the gospel for any of us. None of us get a pass. None of us. We all need to see that we are sinners saved by grace. We all need to see that we're made in God's image, but we're broken and not as we should be. But thankfully, by God's grace, he loves us not as we should be, but actually as we are, because that's all that we can be, is we trust him to free us incrementally in his time as we're being sanctified by that grace. Listen to what N.T. Wright says in his book here about truth and setting us free. In a world where it is suggested that truth itself is an illusion, where truth itself seems like a broken signpost, leading us around in self-defeating circles. The followers of Jesus ought to respond that to proclaim the absence of truth is itself a lie. I mean, think about it. There are no absolutes, except there is no absolute truth. Like, can we see the contradiction there? Can we see that no, two plus two does not equal five, folks? It's madness. Tom Wright says there is such a thing as truth, even if it's more elusive, right? Sometimes it it may be hard to get at it. Uh, I mean, this is why when people go before a court and a judge, they they say, do you swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and what? Nothing but the truth. I'm really waiting for the day where they say, do you swear to tell your truth and your whole truth and nothing but your truth? (laughs) But we don't want that. We shouldn't want that. We want the truth. And as I said, sometimes as Ryan is saying, it's elusive. It's hard to get at. People don't want to tell the truth. This is why they have to swear an oath. They have to put their hand on the Bible. I don't even know if that's even happening anymore. I don't know because I've not been to court. Um, but he says there is such a thing, even though it's elusive and it's strange, stranger than we sometimes imagine. What's more, it is the truth that will set us free, free to live as new creations, free to become truth tellers in our own right. So turn with me one more time to John 
This time, chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 42 through 47. Now, Pastor Melissa was in John chapter 8 uh, last week, but we didn't read these verses. Look what Jesus goes on to say. He's in conversation with the religious leaders who, from his point of view, are hypocrites. Jesus said some hard things about these folks. I mean, he called them sons of snakes. He called them whitewashed tombs. And you say, Jesus, that's not very nice. Well, think of, these people are leading, they're the shepherds of Israel and they're leading Israel astray. This would make any righteous person upset. And Jesus wants to confront them. And he wants to tell them who they really are and who they're acting like. He's told them, if, if God were your father, who you claim he is, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I am not here on my own, but he sent me. Verse 43, why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the are children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He's saying, your heart is not set on the good. Yeah, oh, they were concerned about outward appearances, but not really what was going on with the heart. And as, as one East Texas uncle of mine would say, that really burned his rear. He says, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you show who you really belong to. This is what Jesus is saying, because you don't listen. You don't belong to God. What is Jesus telling us? Number one, he's telling us to love God is to love the truth. To love God is to love the truth, and to love the truth is ultimately to love Jesus. Number two, he would be saying to us, it's, it's hard, and I hear him saying, it's hard to hear and receive the truth when you're not really interested in it anyway. And how many people do we see, right, that, that, that do this? Certainly among leaders today, right? Whether some church leaders, politicians, uh, they, they simply do what they do to gain the upper hand, to get power, to get control, but not really living for the truth not really embracing truth in the goodness of philosophers and the theologians have, have spoken about. And then number three, I hear Jesus saying, there is an unseen enemy, the father of lies, of lies who we serve when we promote untruths. Listen to that. We serve him when we act like his children by promoting untruths or claiming that there is no truth at all. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we must be on guard against falsehoods. We must be set apart as truth lovers, as truth tellers, and as truth doers. And remember, Jesus came not just full of truth, but full of grace, full of grace and truth. This is how we do it. As we're set apart as truth lovers, truth tellers, and truth doers, we point others to the God who looks like Jesus. And we do these things because Jesus shows us and tells us to do them. That's what Jesus prayed for us on the night of his arrest. You may remember in John 17, 
Interesting there. I just love it when I read it because so, so often when you're reading the scriptures, you, you know, well, this wasn't written directly to me, although it is for me. But this is one of those times, one of those prayers where Jesus says, Father, I'm not just praying for my disciples here, but the people that are gonna believe in me in the future. And who's that? <laughs> That's us. I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. Just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking God that you take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Verse 17, Jesus says, make them holy by your truth. Set them apart. That's what that means. Consecrate them for your sacred use. Do what you will. We sang that earlier, like have your way. Have your way with them. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. So brothers and sisters, what does this look like in practice? What are some things that we can do to condition our hearts and our minds to love the truth and to walk in it today? Or you might ask, what does it look like to discover truth and align ourselves with it for the sake of of the gospel. So here are a few things. Disciples of Jesus are called to discover, discern, and devote themselves to the truth in these following ways. The first one is to study and to meditate on the scriptures. To study and meditate on the scriptures. Jesus did this as a young person. Even at the age of 12, he was in the temple talking with the rabbis, asking questions, learning, also teaching them. Immersing ourselves in God's story and not the world's story. Also, it comes through prayer and conversation with the Holy Spirit, actually asking the Lord, what do you think about this? Holy Spirit, is this right? Is it wrong? Should I think this way or should I not? Do you want me to walk this way or not? Do you want me to watch this or not? Do you want me to listen to this or not? Is this true or is it false? And talking to God about it also comes through worship and reflection with the body of Christ. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We don't discern truth in our closet by ourselves. We discern it together in community. We also don't discern it by siloing ourselves into echo chambers where everybody thinks and talks like us either. And this is unfortunate. It's one of the things, the fallout we saw from the pandemic, all the shifting, a lot of people dropping out of their churches and aligning themselves with churches that simply think and talk just like them and believe with their politics. Folks, this is not the body of Christ. This is not how we're to act. <laughs> In fact, within our own congregation, we can see that we are a people who think differently, and that's good. People all across the spectrum. And I think this really encapsulates and captures some of the kingdom of God. That we say we pledge allegiance to Jesus. We pledge allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. We're, we're, we're concerned about what Jesus thinks not our candidate for president. And this is, this is rare, but it can happen. And I think we're seeing it here. We're also to be speaking the truth in love and embodying the truth. Again, we, it's just not things floating around in our head. We, we actually embody it. We do it. We speak the truth in love. We seek to apply it to our lives. What does this mean? What does this message that you're hearing this morning, what does it mean? This is one of the things we're trying to do through our small groups, you know, the sermon-based small groups, is so that you're not just saying, oh, well, that was nice, and then go home and eat your roast. 
that you're actually thinking about it. And you're saying, what is, this, what, what is God saying to me? How do I apply this to my life? What difference does it make? And then lastly, we should be about exposing the darkness, both through reason and faith. Not just quoting verses at people, but actually using logic and reason and wisdom and saying, look, this don't make no sense. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, for such a time as this, we as disciples of Jesus must resist the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and come to know the source of all truth in Jesus Christ, the Logos of God. Amen. Finally, here are some questions to help us reflect and respond together. Number one, how do you see as you've been listening maybe you've maybe some examples have come into your mind maybe some things that you know you've said and ways you've been thinking how do you see the father of lies at work in the world to undermine the objective truths and deny the logos of God how do, how do you see that at work sometimes it's sinister sometimes it seems almost innocent well that's not really that's not what Oprah meant but, but do you see how it seeps in until one day you wake up in a world where there's no truth? How, how do you see this father of lies at work in your own thinking? I believe the Spirit wants us to be more discerning when it comes to the spirit of the age, not just absorbing like a sponge everything that's said and done by the people we like. Number two, in what ways might you need to align yourself with God's truth about who you are Maybe stop believing the lies of the evil one. Stop believing the lies of the world and accept the truth about who God says that you are and the purposes that he has for your life. Maybe you've believed some lies or half-truths that aren't consistent with Scripture and with the gospel. And of course, to know that, you have to be familiar with it. You have to immerse yourself in that, as we already said. What is the Spirit saying to you about this? What is the Spirit saying about your identity, your sexuality, your worth, your past, and your future? When you see that truth, will you align yourself with it this morning, whatever it is, and say yes to that truth? Yes, this is who God says that I am. Yes, this is right, and that is wrong. And align yourself with the truth. And then lastly, number three. What is the Spirit saying to you about telling the truth and living the truth as you walk in grace toward others? And again, those have to go together, folks. Truth and grace. What is the Spirit saying? Telling the truth doesn't give us a license to be jerks. No, like Christ, we're called to speak the truth in love, even if it's saying hard things, and show the same grace that we've been shown by God. What does that look like for you? Maybe a family member's coming to mind. <laughs> uh, maybe a friend, maybe a, a coworker who claims to follow Jesus but isn't really following Jesus. What does this look like for you? Let's pause just for a moment before we enter into a time of reflection and just silently listen for the Lord's voice. You might wanna, again, look at these questions, but let's just, let's pause, take a moment, some of you want to bow your head, that's okay. And just listen to the voice of the Spirit. Let's do that.
Thank you, God, for speaking to us. Holy Spirit, we are listening. Church, there is a broken signpost called truth. May the Spirit help us to see that its fulfillment is found in Christ. In closing, and before we respond to the message together, I thought it appropriate end that we all confess our belief together, our belief in the truth. Would you confess this with me, the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.